We talked a bit about manipulation the last time I was here. And I want to tell you a story. I'm going to continue that theme. A neighbor came to my house. She comes fairly often, and she said to me, I want to have a dinner at my house with you and another couple. We'll call them Fred and Sally. I could see her enthusiasm. I could see how excited she was about uh, having this dinner. Something inside of me didn't really want to go to it. And so I, but I said, uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. Well, sure enough, a few days later, later that week, I receive a text. She says, well, I, I checked with uh, the other couple, and these are the, are the two dates that they are free. Which are you free? I looked at the two dates, and I was very relieved that the first date I was busy. But the second day I was not. Ooh. So I didn't know how to respond to the text. So I just let it go. And sure enough, a week later she came back, and I could tell she was a little bit agitated. Because as soon as she came over, she pulled out her phone and said, which of those days is good for you? Well, I said, the, the first day I, I, I'm busy. And the second one, well, it's, it's just a busy season. It's just a busy season, this uh, these days. And I could tell that she was irritated with me. In fact, she sort of went into a bit of a pout. And then she left, and I felt guilty. And I was unwinding this a bit, and I felt like God was talking to me about manipulation, about how I handle pressure. And I wanted to look at what happened in that interaction. Why did I say yes? Why did I say that sounds good when it didn't sound good to me? Well, it was because this person in my life, I actually want their approval. One of my neighbors, I want to get along. I want their approval. Family members friends, people in our social circle, we often want their approval. And she was so enthusiastic about the dinner, and I didn't want to upset her enthusiasm, and she wanted me to want what she wanted. And so with this momentum, I said, that sounds good, and then I had to change later, and when I changed later, I felt guilty because I indicated that I, I had wanted that. And I want us to look at not only how manipulation comes at us subtly, but how we respond to it. I also know something about myself. I am a people pleaser. I want people to be happy with me. 
You see, if, if you are a people pleaser, I can tell you something about yourself. There was a time in your life when it was unsafe or unhealthy not to please the people around you. There was a time when you were a child or at some point you learned that you needed to please the people around you or life would be difficult for you. They say that people pleasers should never say yes on the spot, that we should always wait and say, I'll, I'll think about that. But I have to tell you that even saying, I'll think about that, would have sounded in this situation to my neighbor as a no. And I didn't want to communicate that. So I said, that sounds good. I said a yes, essentially, when I should have said, I'll think about that or let me get back to you. Well, let's take a look at Jesus. Did he have any pressure put on him to please people? Let's go to Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. It says, then he went home. Now, at this point, I should mention to you, Jesus has moved out of his home in Nazareth, and he has come to live in Capernaum, a city around the Sea of Galilee. He has a house there. It seems that they have gatherings there. And we are joining the story at one of these gatherings. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. You know, that passage has always disturbed me a bit, always kind of unsettled me. I don't, I don't like it. Let's take a look at the opposition coming against Jesus. He's moved out of his home. He's got a new home base, and he's causing quite a stir. And word has gotten back from Capernaum to Nazareth that one of the family members is not towing the party line. You see, something is going wrong. Something has caused them to walk this it's 15 or 20 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. So your family has just walked 15 or 20 miles to see you, and they have sent word in to you, and what is the expectation of everyone around you and of your family? Like in those days, what, it was four or five hour 
walk. I mean, these, they have put a lot of effort into coming to see you, and they would like to see you now. Not only see you, actually they wanted to seize him. They felt that he had lost his mind. Now why would that be? Well, we don't know a lot about Jesus growing up or in his, his childhood, but I think likely he was a fairly quiet boy. I think when he was left behind at the temple, it was because it's the quiet ones that you miss. Never caused a stir, right? It's the loud, boisterous ones that you, you know if they're not there. It's the quiet ones often that you'll miss. He was observant, probably looking for some spiritual conversation, very obedient. But when he left home and he went to be baptized by his cousin John, and he came out, out of the, up out of the water, and the father said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he went out for 40 days into the wilderness of Judea. He came back from that, and he had a new power. It was like he was a new man. Because now he was actually speaking. Now he had a messianic claim. He was healing people. Big crowds were gathered around that were never gathered around him before. And he had the ire, the irritation of the religious leaders, the mafia, if you will. They had a license to kill. This was a problem for his family. The brothers, sisters, he had at least six that we know of, four brothers and at least two sisters. I'm not sure how it was for them to find work in their town, which rabbi was in Nazareth was going to marry any of them. With all of this religious friction Jesus was causing, his family was coming to get him under control. Not only was his family there to get him under control, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, now they had walked quite a distance, or ridden donkeys or something, but they traveled. It was a two-day journey from Jerusalem to come to him to announce that he was doing miracles and casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, essentially by Satan's power. They were there to defame him and devalue him. His family was there for the same thing. We're seeing these two things come one after the other. Big question, does he get his value from what the people around him think of him, as I did with my neighbor? Is he quick to acquiesce? You're not saying what we think you ought to be saying. And that's why he, he takes a stand here. He says, I am not going to be manipulated. I'm not going to be controlled by my family. Could you have done that? Your family shows up outside the door. They've traveled a long distance to see you. Could you have said to them or not even sent a message back to them? 
And could you have kept preaching while they were outside? How controlled are you by the people around you? How controlled are you by what others think of you, especially those close to you? I just want to give you a moment to sit with that. Are there, is there someone in your sphere of influence? Is there someone in your circle who is exerting control on you? It could be a parent, family member, boss, colleague, spouse. That you're doing something that you don't believe God wants you to do or you're not doing something that you believe God wants you to do and they are controlling you and you don't have the courage to stop it. I just want to give you a moment. This is a powerful, powerful force in our culture. I'll tell you another story. A pastor sent me a, a woman to, to talk with, an older woman. She had come out of addiction. And he was concerned that she needed some medication for mental illness. She had depression, she had anxiety. And I began to meet with her, we began to talk. I began to share with her some of the scriptural meditations that I have uh, on my website. Some breathing exercises. And she began to get better. The depression left, the anxiety improved. And as the months passed, things were improving. Relationships began improving. And then there was a man that she became interested in. The man didn't have the same faith that she did. Didn't believe the same way about Jesus. And it was at that time she came to me and she said, you know, I'm starting to have some, some stomach pain. And I want to take this medicine. What do you think about that? And I said, I said to her, you know, I, I've been in a situation similar. I had stomach pain and I took the medicine. And I realized that God said to me, why don't you confront the reason that you have stomach pain? Because we know in medicine that your stomach is one of the most sensitive organs of your body to stress. Is there something in your life that is causing you stress? Most of us don't want to face that. I just want to take the medicine so that I can keep doing whatever I'm doing and my life doesn't have to change. And so I told her this story. And I said, I would love for you to just confront, let's look at what's causing that stress. Also, how about the coffee you're drinking? How about the things, the way you eat? There are some things that perhaps you could change before you just take the medicine. Well, that's not what she wanted to hear. And so I learned a few weeks later, she just announced she was taking the medicine. It made her feel better. 
okay. Then a few months went by, and she said, you know, I want to get on some medication for my anxiety. And I said something similar. I said, now you're going to be taking medicine that actually is going to change your brain chemistry. God made your brain a certain way. And when you began doing the meditations, your brain chemistry changed. You were freed from your depression. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes when we get better, we quickly stop doing the things that we did to make us get better. When we improve in our physical condition or our mental state, we very quickly will stop doing those things that got us there. And then we'll say with justification, I've tried that. I said, look, I'll call her Dorothy. Look, Dorothy, your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your screen time, the amount of time you spend on your phone, all of the stimulation you have in your life, this relationship, the sugar that you eat. There are a lot of things that you could change before you take this medicine. That's not what Dorothy wanted to hear. She wanted, she said, I just want a sound mind. I just want my problems to go away. And no matter what I tried, and it was a heated discussion, that's not what she wanted to hear. And so she left that evening, and I was angry. I was angry. And I even felt like I was justified to say, you know, I don't really want to have Dorothy over to the house anymore. But now what was I doing? Was I going to enter into manipulation to say, I know the right thing to do, and I will make sure that you do the right thing. I will use everything in my power, including withdrawing my love from you, to make you do what I believe that you should do. We do it to our children. We do it to our friends. We do it to people closest to us. For good reason, it's for their health, or so we believe. But I was invested. The other problem with our friends and our family is that we are invested. I had been meeting with her for years. She had gotten better using my meditations, and I wanted to see, I had a vested interest in seeing those continue to work in her lives, in her life, and in other lives, to give testimony that that what I was doing was good. And I felt like a failure. I felt like a failure. Sometimes our manipulation, we think it's about them, but actually a fair amount of this was about me. And so the next day I got up and I texted her and I said, we don't have to agree. You don't have to agree with me. I will continue to love you and I will continue to be your friend. You are welcome to make the decision you feel is right for you. Is it possible in your sphere to give people room to make mistakes? What I would consider mind-altering mistakes. It's very difficult to get off a medication 
that you begin to take for mental problems. But I realize that she has a father. Dorothy has a very good father and a very good savior. And guess what? It's not me. Are you trying to be the savior to your friends, to your family members, to your colleagues, to your children? And not allowing them to make decisions that may hurt them. See, the problem with all of this is that when the people around you make poor decisions, it affects you. It affects you. Yeah, you're going to suffer if the people around you, if your family members make poor decisions, get themselves in debt, take medications that are not going to be good for them, you know, take illegal drugs, whatever, drugs, crime, sex. You see people making mistakes, it is going to cost you. It's going to cost you, and we don't want to pay that price. So sometimes we use... I told you so. I told you so is a form of manipulation. It's not manipulation for this. It's manipulation for the next issue that comes up between us. I'm just paying it forward. I'm just making sure that next time I give my opinion, I'm going to get your obedience instantly. That's what I told you so is. How many forms of manipulation we have I want to finish up. I want to talk a bit about narcissism. Because narcissism, some of this is just between friends or family members, but some of us, probably almost all of us, have a family member who is narcissistic, who basically would say is an abuser, is someone who verbally or physically will make life very difficult for you if you don't agree with them. You see, a narcissistic person has a lot of pain. They have a lot of pain. But if you talk to them, they believe they actually have a very small problem. Their problem is small. What makes the problem big is when you don't agree with them. Now, that's a big problem. See, it's you. You are the problem. And if you would just do what I say, and all this anger comes out, physical, verbal, and it hurts. And you want to make sure next time that you make sure they are happy. You see, there's a deal. There's an agreement between the narcissist and we'll call it the victim. It goes like this. Uh, the victim says, I will take your pain because, and I will give you my resources, my empathy, maybe some money, whatever you need, my emotional energy. I'm going to give that to you in exchange for peace, in exchange for you not being angry and not making me fearful. Very, very difficult to deal with. You see, not only does a narcissist dispense pain to you, they also make, it feel, make you feel like it is your fault. Well, you deserved it. Well, if you wouldn't have upset me, I would never have done that. You see, I have a very small problem. The problem actually is 
is you. Narcissists cannot receive shame. The shame is always going to come back at you. And the only way to deal with those types of people is to set boundaries. Often we need to separate from them. We need to do something that doesn't allow that system to work, that triggers you to say, I will give you my resources and I will take your pain. But it does take two. It takes a victim and it takes an abuser to make the system work. But oftentimes we learn that as children that we need to take the emotional responsibility for our parents' happiness, for their mood. And when we do that, we actually set ourselves up to be in these narcissistic relationships. I want to just pause for a moment. I want to have each of us reflect, is there a relationship like that in our lives? Jesus had plenty of them. And he was able to stand up to any type of manipulation and say, that is not good for me. I'm not going to receive your emotional pain in exchange for peace. He paid a very high price for that. They killed him out of jealousy and envy and the fact that he would not acquiesce. He would not bow to their pressure. Are you acquiescing? Are you giving in in an area that God has saying to you? You know, it's time to draw a boundary there. It's time to stand up to that. It's time to separate from that abuse. You are not helping. You see, the victim actually has this identity that you have a unique set of gifts that you can offer to the narcissist that helps them, it soothes them, but it never fixes them. Your energy, your emotions, the gift that you give, your resources, it never fixes them. Their pain continues to come at you and at other people. Is it time to wake up from that illusion and to face the fact that stopping giving the narcissist resources is going to cause some anger? But you have a savior. You have a father who is good and that he may want freedom for you in a way that you have never had. I'm just going to give you a few moments just to, to meditate on that. What we do, what we do when we manipulate others and when we allow them to manipulate us is we insist that our will works out. We are not really concerned that God's will is going to work out. We know that will work out. What we're most concerned with is my will in this situation going to work out. And if you're the manipulator, it's whatever you want. The money, the sex, the power. You want your will to work out. And if you're the victim, your will is to have some peace. Just some peace. Maybe stop the fear. Not have to engage at a new level of faith with your Heavenly Father. 
You want your will to work out. Maybe we can stop right now and just, and just say a prayer and say, God, I, I am concerned or I'm convinced that your will is going to work out and I now submit my will to you. Is there an area of my life that I need to take a stand and I need to either stop manipulating those around me, recognize it, repent of it, stop manipulating the people around me, or I need to stop receiving the manipulation for those around me trying to control me. Let's take a moment, just have you talk with God, submitting your will to him. I just want to finish by making one more point. It is the person... The person with the power in the relationship is typically the person who is least invested. It's the person who keeps saying, well, let's just get a divorce. I'm gonna... It's the person who keeps throwing around this, I'm going to pull away from you. The person who's least invested controls the relationship. And if you're wondering if this relationship is worth staying in, you may need to draw some boundaries and see if that person is going to come forward. You've been doing all the work. It's always your fault. If you stop, are they going to take up some of the work? Or does the relationship only work the way they've designed it? The person with the power is the person least invested. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this congregation. I thank you for the blessing of courage. I thank you how you withstood manipulation, how you withstood it from your family, how you withstood it from the religious leaders, from the people of power of the day. And I ask a huge dispensation of courage and of the faith it will take to make the stands that we need to make to make a difference in our lives, in our families, and in our health. In Jesus' name, amen.